Welcome back to the PitCon podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Gregory Smith about the interplay between conservation science and art. My name is Greg Smith. I've got a long title. I'm the Otto N. Frenzel III Senior Conservation Scientist at the Indianapolis Museum of Art at Newfields. So I work in the area of cultural heritage chemistry, authenticating, studying, and helping to preserve artwork. And what first attracted you to this field? Well, uh, as an undergraduate, I went to a small liberal arts school in Kentucky, Center College, to be a chemist. But because it was liberal arts, I got dropped into a general education requirement course. That was cultural anthropology, which I think at the time, I probably had no idea what those words actually meant. But two weeks in, I was hooked. I knew that whatever I did in chemistry, there was going to have to be some sort of culture aspect to it. And could you define what conservation science is and its role with cultural heritage? Cultural heritage chemists or conservation scientists, they use the tools of chemistry and physics uh, to study the materials of artwork. And then that information is used to either interpret the artwork to better understand it or is used in the long-term preservation of the artwork. I see. And um, what analytical techniques are usually used to uncover the secrets of arts and art history? So my laboratory at the museum would probably be pretty familiar to anybody who's been in, say, a university laboratory. So we use uh, the broad range of analytical techniques. We do spectroscopy, both molecular and elemental. We do chromatography in the gas phase and the liquid phase. We do a lot of microscopy using both light as well as electrons. And then a lot of the more esoteric techniques, thermal analysis, accelerated aging. So quite a range of uh, techniques. Quite a range. And um, why is it so important to understand the chemical degradation of an artist's materials and how can it help to improve our understanding of cultural heritage? Well, if your goal is the long-term preservation of the artwork or the cultural heritage, if you don't understand what its weaknesses are, what's going to lead to its degradation, you won't be able to stop it. So, for instance, if we're worried about the fading of dyes, we would try to understand that mechanism, determine if it's photooxidation. Maybe we would use anoxia in order to preserve a watercolor print in a frame, for instance. I see. And um, although they appear to be separate superficially, what is the scientific overlap between art analysis and crime scene investigations? Yeah, they seem like disparate fields. You've got scientists who are solving crime, you've got scientists who are trying to preserve artwork, but in fact they do have a lot of overlap. It begins with the scientists themselves. We share an uh, investigative mindset as well as, as I mentioned, a very similar tool set. Uh, the samples are very similar, oftentimes quite small, quite precious, irreplaceable. And it could be anything. So anything can end up at a crime scene. Similarly, anything can end up in an art museum. More than you'd think then, eh? And um, what advantages can um, this approach give to cultural heritage at present? Yeah, so there is a, a forensic principle that when a criminal is, is committing a crime, they will leave traces that can be read if you can detect them. And so that same mindset in our field, if we think about the history of an artwork or how it's changed or how it was made, each of those leaves some sort of trace. And if we can figure out the way to analyze or detect that, we'll understand something about the history, the condition, the workmanship of this artwork. And then moving more on towards the topic of um, art connoisseurship, how have you seen this um, evolve over time? 
Well, a lot of connoisseurs rely on their eyes or their hands to read an artwork to understand it. But with the advent of cultural heritage chemistry as a field, there are now so many more tools that they can use to visualize artwork, maybe outside of the visible range using infrared or x-rays. And then, of course, all of the materials characterization techniques, which can tell them information that you just can't get from your eyes or your hands. So it's revolutionary in that sense. It's quite interesting to see all the different kind of um, secrets that have been uncovered with the new techniques, isn't it? And um, could you kind of discuss a little bit about the different roles that science can play in, in arts? Yeah, if you think about the interface between art and science, there are a lot of places where science touches on art. So, for instance, there are the scientists who create new art materials. These are the formulators that might work for paint or pigment companies. There are people like us that analyze or authenticate artwork that might end up in museum collections. There are conservators who are the ones that restore and treat the artwork, and they're also trained as scientists. And then on, I guess, the most fundamental level is that there's science that occurs in the actual creation of the artwork. If you think of like the patination of a bronze sculpture, that's all corrosion chemistry happening. And what are the main challenges that the field of cultural heritage, what, what does, it, does it face? So I would say a lot of the challenges are the same ones that are shared in the more mainstream sciences. Funding, of course, especially for a very applied field like mine. Uh, but also big data sets. So a lot of our techniques, which used to be discrete kind of point-and-shoot spectroscopic sampling, are now 2D imaging techniques. So you may walk away and in the morning come back to hundreds of thousands of spectra. And so how do we deal with those very large data sets in order to tease out the information that we're interested in? And then as our world becomes smaller and we are traveling around, not all artwork can come to the lab, we have to take the lab to the artwork. So miniaturization and portability and analytical techniques can allow me to work in our art and nature park out behind the museum, or it may allow me to travel to Egypt and be part of an excavation working in a tomb somewhere. That's quite fascinating, really. And um, what has been the most poignant piece of art or artifact that you have worked on during your career and why? Yeah, people ask that a lot, and I've been very fortunate that in my career I've had the opportunity to work on some pretty spectacular artwork. If you think Van Gogh or Rembrandt or Gauguin, and it, it would probably be really easy to say one of those because it certainly you know, raises the hair on the back of your neck when you're peering down a microscope at a Van Gogh. But at the same time, we may be working with a freshly excavated ceramic pot, and you think, you know, here you are holding something that a human hand hasn't touched for 2,000 years, and that too can be a pretty special event. No, definitely. And what are you working on right now that you're especially excited about? Well, for the last couple years, we've been working on emissive pigments. So these would be things like day glows, those neon bright pigments. Uh, we've been studying their compositions and thinking about them in terms of exhibition. This is partly driven because we have just opened a show at our museum of Steven Sprouse, who was a designer from Indiana, kind of the designer to the punk rock generation. So in the 80s and 90s, he used a lot of neon colors, glow-in-the-dark colors, and we need to understand these pieces before we put them on exhibition and sort of know what to expect in terms of how they may change as a result of that. Sounds quite fun. And speaking more about your attendance to PitCon today, um, what are you most looking forward to about PitCon in San Diego? 
Uh, for me, the show is always about the new gadgets. Uh, so being on the floor and looking at what the latest innovations are, I think like we're having to replace uh, infrared and Raman spectrometers. So what are going to be the new developments that we can expect to see debuted at that show? And as I'm sure you're aware, PitCon was placed on pause um, for, as an in-person event for two years. But why is it so important for individuals to come to these in-person events? What benefits can they gain? Well, if you think about the, the expo floor, you don't get the opportunity to kick the tires on that many instruments in one go unless you're at an in-person event like this. But also for me, it's the chance to meet up with colleagues. We were discussing earlier that in the symposium that I spoke in, I had friends that I hadn't seen for five or six years because I live in Australia, so an in-person meeting is a great opportunity to do that. Every month we will be sharing an exclusive interview with some of PitCon's four leaders. Remember to leave a review, share the episode and follow the PitCon podcast to hear first hand when new episodes are out.